The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Climate Papers with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Elisa Gilbert from the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment. This podcast brings together the best minds in the country to discuss the most important issues in the lead up to COP26. And today is no exception. Alyssa, we have a somewhat controversial subject to discuss today, don't we? Yeah, it is quite a difficult one. People struggle to grasp with the idea of offsets. Good offsets, bad offsets, how to use offsets. And the paper itself has is quite interesting in terms of the series of papers that you've been producing. Yeah, that's right. So as the university's network, our objective, one of our objectives is to take the expertise that we have on climate change across the UK universities and be able to share them with colleagues, for example, in the cabinet office and the UK civil service and internationally to help make, you know, COP26 and the climate negotiations a success. But this paper, rather than being externally facing, is really helping us share information with our peers and with each other to try and help other universities and ourselves on this journey we have towards net zero. Um, so that's been quite interesting because we're we're sharing information with ourselves, advice to each other, but also we've started to see that this is relevant not just to universities but all kinds of other institutions. Yeah, so often when we talk about these subjects, there's a read across into the wider world, into business, large and small, and into decision making and policy making. So, so it's fantastic to have one of the authors of the paper and, if I might say, a frontline practitioner as well to discuss the subject with us today. And I'm delighted to welcome Eli Mitchell Larson who's a researcher at the School of Geography and Environment at the University of Oxford, and he's also part of the Environmental Change Institute. He's a former COO of Sun Pharma, a social enterprise that designs, deploys and finances solar installations in Nepal. And he describes himself as a carbon storage evangelist. Eli, that's a great description of you. Um, thanks so much for coming and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Lisa. Great to meet you and uh, happy to be here on behalf of my co-authors. Our second guest is also from the university sector, but he brings a practitioner's perspective to the discussion. Matt Dunlop is head of sustainability, Newcastle University, and as such finds himself on the sharp end of making a net zero reality for the university. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to start a conversation around this topic, which occupies me daily in the work that we do to try and set the path towards net zero for, for Newcastle University. Great. So I wondered perhaps we could start with you, Eli, because I mean, I suspect a lot of people listening will know exactly what we mean when we talk about carbon offset. But that was really at the heart of the paper that we're, we're using as our jumping off subject today. So what is a carbon offset? Sure. And I, I should add that we were joking before the show, uh, you know, listener discretion advised in the sense that often talking about carbon offsets can be quite contentious. You know, we have everything from George Monbiot's famous piece, I think it was back in 2006, where he referred to carbon offsets as indulgences. Uh, and then there's others who are very gung-ho. If you look at Mark Carney's recent effort uh, with the uh, Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, it's like, how do we 100x this market? So there's a range of views. Um, and in the uh, process of having these conversations, which sometimes can be somewhat contentious, I've ha I have had to define offsets. And to my great pleasure, if you look at the definition of offsets, that is published by Shell, that's published by Greenpeace, or that's published by the Stockholm Environment Institute. Whoever you ask, it's always the same. And it is a financial instrument wherein you pay another entity to either reduce or remove 
carbon from the atmosphere. So the so it, it's either an emission reduction or a carbon removal. Emission reduction meaning there were some emissions that were about to hit the atmosphere. You underwent some intervention to stop that from happening in the future. Alternatively, it could be a carbon removal, which means you actually take carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases out of the air, uh, whether through natural means or engineered means. Uh, and the other piece of the definition is it's some, it's a some, it's outside of your organization, so you're paying someone else to do this on your behalf. I think that's key, isn't it? It's that that the idea that you're paying someone else because because that's what sets it apart from perhaps a net zero transition journey where you're actually working really hard to do things as an actor in your own right as an organization or as an individual to take responsibility for the emissions you have rather than outsourcing, if you like, solution to the problem. I would argue though that the thing about offsetting is they're part and parcel of net zero. Like when we say net zero emissions, what's the net? Well, the net is the balance of sources and sinks. That's what the IPCC 1.5 report helped make crystal clear for us, that that's the end state we're all going for. And first of all, it's not the end state. It's just, it's a race to net zero after which we immediately begin the race to absolute zero. So have no fear. We'll get to a point at which we're not removing carbon from the atmosphere and storing it places. We can't do that forever. But that's the sort of pressing, urgent challenge. And so we titled the brief, you know, how can carbon offsetting help UK further and higher education institutions achieve net zero emissions? It's a bit of a mouthful, but I think it's important that we have that net zero emissions piece in the title because we're, we're trying to be pragmatic and say, there's no question that most perhaps all of our institutions in the UK internationally are going to be using some, some form of offset in order to achieve these net zero emission goals, which they've made quite ambitious. In the UK, there's quite a few uh, as soon as 2030, 2035, 2040. And so to actually do that, you know, there are these, these hard to abate emissions from uh, cement production, steel, long haul air travel, shipping, et cetera, that are really hard to get rid of. And if we want to have, you know, internationally, facing uh, research institutions, we're probably going to want to keep incurring those emissions. And so if we want to both do those and achieve net zero emissions, there's going to be this uh, role for a financial mechanism to help universities support mitigating actions outside of their own purview. Because as a sector, it's quite significant, isn't it, in terms of the, I mean, in the paper, you, you talk about, you know, the, the, the 1.7 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent across the sector. But if you include student travel, for example, it leaps to something like 11 million tonnes, and you know, which is 3% of the UK total. So these are big figures. So it's a very significant part of our overall drive to net zero as a, as a country that we tackle these, these issues within the university sector and higher education generally. That's right. And, and we should probably pivot to Matt because I think uh, the question is, you know, how do we actually reduce as much of those emissions as possible? And then, and I guess maybe briefly, just to kind of lay out the structure of the brief before we go into that, um, we tried to really say, you know, what are all the issues that practitioners uh, at, in the sustainability departments of all of our universities are facing when they're trying to calculate and report those emissions? So you cited that 1.7 uh, million tons approximately of scope one and two emissions. But if you include scope three emissions, which is all of the indirect emissions associated with uh, construction and travel and all these other sort of ancillary elements, it, it might be, you know, it's as high as 11. And what we found, though, is that, you know, those are estimates that, you know, we did our best to assemble, but really we were working with what data we had available. And not all universities are, are reporting all of these different emissions, and they're not necessarily doing so consistently. So that's kind of the first piece was our recommendations for how to kind of get everybody leveled up on that. And then second, once you have a handle on what those emissions are, and you've reduced them to the extent possible, as low as reasonably practicable, as we say, then 
then there's that last chunk that let's say is permissible to offset. So that's kind of section two of the brief. And then finally, we talk about, okay, now you know how, how many offsets you're going to buy. Well, which offsets do you buy? It's quite overwhelming. And how do we pick the ones that are going to uh, actually be effective and be aligned with a net zero outcome? Matt, you're at the kind of sharp end of all this. How does it feel from where you're sitting in, in Newcastle? What, do you have a net zero target? Uh, we do. Uh, we declared a climate emergency in April 2019 and were one of the first universities to do so. And when we looked at what date our net zero target should be at that point, um, we the UK government target now enshrined in, in law uh, is, is 2050. Um, and our strategy commits us to be visibly leading. So ultimately, we decided to, to, to go for a target in advance of the 2050 date. And we, at that point, chose to, to go for 2040 at the latest. That feels challenging in itself. Um, uh, but uh, I have to say that we are actually in the process at the moment of considering whether or not we need to raise the ambition again from from there. As, as Eli said, there are universities who've set even more ambitious targets than that. And what I'm trying to do at the moment is to understand the the, the path to net zero. And it's a, it's a metaphor that I like because the path is is varied, winding, involves doubling back sometimes. Um, it's it's very difficult. And at the at the uh, we don't know the route. Um, we don't know all the technologies that are going to get us there to to help us uh, achieve the target. But what we do know is that climate science is is clear, and the urgency is 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 the is the key. Um, so uh, our approach is one where we focus on abatement as much as we possibly can in the in the short term, reduce our emissions as far as possible. And our approach within our plan was to was to uh, address the offsetting issue and say that. Um, you know, we recognise that offsetting is a part of net zero, as Eli said. You know, you are good. There are always going to be in an organisation like ours uh, some emissions that are impossible to reduce. Um, so I think the question is, though, is that one around scope? And what do we say before there was clear definition, uh, which was helpful for me, Eli, on 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 offsetting? I think we lack a similarly clear definition of net zero in the sector. So um, what one university means by net zero at the moment differs to, to what another one might mean, not just in target date, but in terms of uh, which emission sources they are including within the net zero target and therefore which emissions will need um, offsetting if if you don't get there with your, your mitigation plans. So uh, I think we'll end up talking a little bit more about that. But that's that's where we're at at the minute, is, is trying to understand if we can realistically raise our ambition uh, and achieve an earlier date even than 2040. It was always 2040 at the latest, but to try and shift that target, actually shift the headline to, to another date and see if if there is a realistic path to that for our for our organisation, mm, and I wouldn't say you're alone in the sector as 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 not having a full understanding or a full agreement about what we mean by net zero. I think that's those conversations are replicated right across the, the the business and commercial world. So it's not something that you're just struggling with. I'd like to just ask you, if I may, what how, how is this going down with your colleagues? What's the sort of response to um, the idea of being on this net zero transition pathway as a university, reducing your emissions amongst 
fellow, you know, fellow university members amongst academics and students and, and those who are responsible for taking what will probably be some quite tough decisions about what they can and can't or should and shouldn't do in terms of, of their current behaviours. Getting the, the colleagues to understand the sort of scale of the change that we're talking about, that climate science demands, not just in the university, but in, in society at large, uh, I think I think there's a tendency for people to uh, to to assume that you know politics will and technology and and uh, you know uh, academia will will sort this problem out with 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 perhaps out without much change on their part they might consider you know insulating their homes or buying an electric car and and, and measures like that but it goes deeper than that for, for for everything and it really does call into question how we operate as universities you know how we conduct education how we conduct research. Are there ways in which we can do that that are that are much lower carbon than what we do now? Not the sort of incremental slow change, but how can we radically alter what we do in order to meet the near-term targets that are required if we're going to stick within a two degrees or preferably the 1.5 degree pathway set out in the Paris Agreement? So encouraging ways in which colleagues can see how they can contribute, where where they impact and therefore where they can make a difference, whether that's a conversation with a maintenance officer about how we need to replace that boiler with something that isn't a boiler um, and, and what the consequences of, of, of that are, or whether it's about how we carry out a research project with partners in the global south with less travel to that location, they're, they're, they're all difficult conversations, actually, because they, they challenge the, the current way we do things. Uh, so I suppose that said, I'm lucky to work in an organisation where, where uh, the executive and, and many, many colleagues, uh, academics and, and professional service colleagues alike, recognise the climate emergency and the issue and are open to to exploring uh, new ways of working to to try and achieve that. So, um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to overstate the challenge, but it is kind of Marshall Plan scale type <laughs> challenge that we're we're talking about. So it's uh, yeah, it's a big institution space. to turn yeah. to turn around, isn't it? And a lot of people to influence and get on your side. Eli, Absolutely. I think you wanted to jump in there. Well, I just love the way Matt framed it as this decarbonization challenge is both very mundane and potentially very radical. Like it's everything from the small behavioral shifts to, you know, you could decide to take a very radical approach or, or, or like MIT has with their open courses. And effectively all MIT courses are available uh, for free online. Uh, and, you know, I do think I, I certainly don't want to go down the, the trope of, you know, well, the pandemic has allowed us to do everything remotely. Although I did find, have an interesting interaction with some students from my alma mater, my undergrad alma mater, where they were basically saying that they're frustrated by this um, refrain of, well, like, you know, we're so sorry you're going through this experience. It almost presupposes that what was normal before is something that they're missing out on. Some students have never experienced anything else. And so it's potential it, it, during a time when they're, you know, under immense stress uh, psychologically for many reasons already, it's too bad, I, I suppose, that we would then burden them further with this sense that they're somehow receiving an inferior experience, which in some ways they certainly are. I mean, it's definitely difficult socially. Um, one thing I just wanted to mention about the sort of radical and the mundane, one thing that frustrates me as an outsider 
by which I mean not a practitioner in the sustainability department. And I think some of the practitioners I've spoken with at the University of Oxford and elsewhere would share my frustration. I'm, I'm curious what Matt, what Matt thinks. And that is that, you know, all of the ways that we have to reduce emissions have some levelized costs associated with them, right? And this is this idea of a marginal abatement cost. And uh, there's also the, the extent to which some of them pay themselves back more quickly. Some of them don't pay themselves back. But what's frustrating is that a lot of interventions that are that are quite NPV positive, net present value positive, if you will, like they, they, they're interventions that make money. And what I'm hearing, what I'm thinking of in this instance, mostly is energy efficiency. There's all kinds of like very low hanging fruit that actually make money. I would argue they have better internal rates of return than hiring another postdoc or, you know, opening some new building. And what frustrates Eli, what do you me, mean make money? You mean they're projects that generate income or they make money well, that they save you cost? They save you money, which is the same, okay. you know, okay. if you do a discounted cash flow model, I mean, it's yeah. the same as the return you might make from, you know, increasing your uh, student numbers so you can make more tuition fees. It's like okay. all, like any business can pursue which projects they want. And yet those projects fall under the purview of the sustainability office. I would argue those should be under the, you know, financial office and the sustainability office's budget should be 100% devoted to things that don't have, you know, three, four, five, even six year paybacks. So I see no reason to this idea of Marshall Plan mobilization. You know, let's get creative. Let's harness alumni. There's a lot of, you know, wealthy alumni from all of these institutions. Let's get them not to donate, but to finance, you know, all of the low hanging fruit and just knock it out in the, in the next 10 years. You know, why can't we in the next 10 years have done every single boiler replacement with a ground source or air source heat pump, every single window double pane? I mean, these are not difficult. And they're actually not that expensive. And uh, yeah, it, it frustrates me that, you know, we get all these, this pushback about offsets when it's like, well, first do all that stuff, because frankly, it's, it, it can be done and, and there's not enough resources being devoted within the sustainability departments to tackle it. Matt, over to well, you, I think. <laughs> I, I was, yeah, well, I was writing a, a paper for, uh, um, for executive board earlier today, which was about investment in solar photovoltaic on our estate, a, a large retrofit program. And if you looked at that in terms of a marginal cost abatement curve, you would find that it's probably not the, the lowest hanging fruit but it is really easy to do because if you've got uh, if you've got loads of uh, free roof space uh, and it still delivers a t- return you know we don't need um government subsidy to to do solar pv uh, anymore it's it's it's, it's got to pay back it's a longer term payback than you would uh, perhaps fund uh, solely from your normal the normal sources that we use which require a sort of 8 10 year payback that sort of order but it's not much longer than that, you know. And there's there's um, there's definitely a, a positive uh, net present value and uh, and, a, and a good internal rate of return for, that, for those sorts of projects. So we are doing those, and we're also doing, you know, we have done a lot of the low hanging fruit, you know, from you know putting entirely new thermal envelopes on on buildings and and replacing all the the M and E plant in there. Um, I think the, the I don't want to underplay though. One of the issues we've talked about in in raising our ambition is just the disruption that that could potentially cause to mm. to the estate in terms of programming all those works. Whether it is replacing your glazing or putting a new thermal envelope on a building or or replacing the heating system, all of those works are disruptive to to, to teaching and to, to to research and to the operation of the university. And if you're trying to do it in half the time or whatever. Uh, uh, time zone you choose uh that just adds to that disruption so though you know i have to manage the practical issues as well as the business cases but uh you know i i, I totally agree that there are still 
opportunities out there. Um, for us particularly, um, there is a, a challenge in as much as roof space. Yes, that's a, that's a, that's a relatively easy win from a, from a renewables point of view, but in a city center location like we are with no sort of, um, access to land really for large scale wind, um, you know, challenging, uh, sort of ground conditions for, for, for ground source heat pumps. Um, your, your options actually are quite limited sometimes or, or, uh, at least limited at, at low cost. So it is about that, you know, how much, you know, the question always gets asked, well, how much is it going to cost? And, uh, um, you know, that's a very difficult question to answer until you've actually done some design work on real world projects. I mean, maybe to bring it back kind of a bit to the offset discussion, I think you've reached that that tricky point there, Matt, where you said, okay, eventually you run out of the things that you can do in the time frame to achieve net zero um, that you can really achieve either because of the reasonable cost dimension, which of course is slightly moving bar, or because, and we were talking about flights before, we just don't yet have the technology available to do that, aside from demand management. And I think this is what really interesting then, because in a way, it's, it's kind of exciting because you've got to prod your institution into a place where they're talking about some quite strategic issues. So the issue of foreign travel, um, once if you've included it in your scope, relates to both how academics work, which is essential if you believe that research is done better in a global way, and also education. Um, and there has been quite an internationalization of a lot of UK universities, which brings many, many, many benefits. And so internalizing how do we deliver that internationalization agenda whilst achieving net zero, I think that starts to bring us to the heart of the things that universities might have to offset and then the scale of that question. Absolutely. I, you took the words right out of my mouth, Elise, and I was also going to ask about, the, you mentioned earlier, Matt, the change in, in how you deliver your model. So I can completely understand about, you know, the plant and managing the plant. And, and Eli's right, in a way that is expensive as it is, complicated and disruptive as it is, that is a low-hanging fruit. It's how you change the delivery model. And if you should be changing the delivery model, you know, what do you do differently? Um, you know, you do not I suspect want a future where all courses are taught online via Zoom, even though, you know, we don't want to go around and make students feel they're getting a lesser deal here. We know that that isn't a replacement for face-to-face. We know it's not a replacement for, you know, small group working and, and lectures and opportunities to, to mix and understand and, and, and gain knowledge from one another. So, so how do we shift the teaching model as well as how do we just deal with some of those things that we cannot, we cannot reduce, whether it's international flights or others? So kind of two questions in one, but but Eli, what do you think about this shift in a teaching model that, that you know, in terms of how we could do this differently? Well, I really appreciate, yeah, Lisa, bringing it back to this I, this flying piece because it is the massive elephant in the room. I mean, we were shocked when we did our, our estimates about you know just the range of uh, the massive amount of emissions, and it really is, if you will, a business model. This is the business model of our universities. We are recruiting, you know, excellent students from North America, like myself, and and from China, from from India, from from all over the world. And um, yeah, sometimes I feel guilty that you know I I myself am flying in and out. And so there's lots of silly things, like I think, for example, at Oxford, when term ends, the dormitories close the day after, so students have to basically fly home. So a lot of students are flying to and from East Asia, you know, three or four times a year, which is completely unnecessary. Um, but yeah, I think uh, there are things we can do to sort of shift the model. But I think we have to be realistic about the fact that, you know, well, we can be grateful that we have excellent higher education institutions in the UK and that they're attracting students from abroad. And that that's a good thing. And that that provides so much uh, internationalism and emergent properties in the student body. And it's just it's really 
a wonderful thing that we wouldn't necessarily want to lose. And so I think we have to be very serious about how do we accommodate flying and, and bringing international students in and out. Our main thing, and this gets back to Matt's point about being clear on scope, our main recommendation was, you know, actually, technically, by the letter of the greenhouse gas protocol, fly, flights, even, well, business flights of staff at the university would be considered scope three emissions of the university. But flights taken by students or conference attendees are not considered uh, scope three emissions of the university. And, and they're considered the responsibility of those students and those conference attendees. I would say, you know, while the greenhouse gas protocol is is excellent, I mean, I, it's not it's not gospel, right? It was a it was a construct created by the World Resources Institute and and BP, and it's it, maybe it's outlived its usefulness in some ways. And so, what we talk about is let's look at all the the emissions that are attributable to the delivery of the university's mission, which is higher education. And clearly, very clearly, if you're actively recruiting international students and you and you're bringing those students there those emissions from flying are attributable to your mission. And so they should be included and they will need to be offset. Let's be realistic in, in the next you know, decade or two. And so this gets to this question immediately of, well, what kinds of offsets are, should be permissible and appropriate for offsetting you know, fossil CO2 emissions uh, from planes? And so that's a topic hopefully, hopefully we can get into a little bit later in the conversation. It's just, what does that mean about balancing fossil emissions with appropriate carbon removal and storage that will balance that, that damage that's being caused? Let's dive into that straight away. But I think I would just say that, that in a corporate perspective, those students' flights would definitely be considered part of scope three because they would be as a result of using the service or i.e. using the product provided by the university. And therefore I think they would fall into a scope three, a scope three model. So so I think you're absolutely right, Eli. So let's okay, let's talk about offsetting then. I mean, you you describe yourself as a kind of carbon storage evangelist. What are some of the issues that we need to wrestle with here to, to provide the sort of support that that Matt and his colleagues who are who are in the universities trying to shift cultures around, trying to shift behaviors around. What are some of the, the things that we need to provide him with in terms of information and, and advice and opportunities? Well, I think um, you know, what's one of the difficult things about offsets is that we're putting a lot of pressure on them. We're trying to use a single financial instrument to solve a lot of problems. Or uh, uh, there was an alternative someone told me that killing a few birds of one stone, maybe it was something about serving multiple scones, a less violent analogy, but, you know, knocking off multiple things at once. Uh, and that is because, you know, universities have a desire to potentially have their offsetting programs link with teaching opportunities. They have constituents who want those offsets to be ideally within the UK, often associated with ecosystem restoration, biodiversity, perhaps even other sustainable development goals abroad, including rural livelihoods, things like that. So one thing we caution is that, you know, first of all, uh, in the context of net zero emissions, although these sort of social and biodiversity related impacts that are often referred to as co-benefits, so you've got the carbon benefit that the offset is claiming, and then it's also potentially got these uh, appealing co-benefits, th those are very important. For one, you need to make sure the offsets you're buying aren't causing any harm on any of those metrics. And that's what, you know, afforestation as opposed to reforestation is a really problematic concept if you're, you know, putting forests where there aren't supposed to be forests. Um, and so, but but the the point I'm trying to make here is that while those co-benefits are important, they are secondary if you're talking about net zero emissions to the carbon benefit. And this is where this idea of carbon storage comes in, because a lot of both emission reduction methods and carbon removal methods, which again are the sort of two phases of offsetting, a lot of them require storing this carbon after you've removed or reduced it. If you're talking about a forest, well, then you've got to preserve the carbon that's locked in that forest. Same for a peatland. 
if you're talking about a more permanent form of storage in, in mineralized forms or in geological reservoirs, well, that's going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to generate any sort of ecosystem restoration co-benefits, but the permanence is going to be a lot higher. So I think um, one point that we tried to make in the brief is that, you know, in the short term, a lot of the offsets we're going to be buying are by necessity going to deliver shorter term storage. They're going to involve locking up carbon in ecosystems. And those are very important, but that can't be the long-term solution. And so we talk about this progressive transition towards more effectively permanent carbon storage. And this idea that by the time we reach net zero, we really need to exclusively be storing carbon in the geosphere. So the fossil carbon that we're emitting, that we're digging up, that's been locked up for millions of years, we need to balance that with commensurate deposition of carbon into that same safe geosphere. So in, in a simple sense, you can think of it as like for like. If you're emitting fossil emissions, we'll make sure that you put back as much as you took out. If you're having uh, you know, biological emissions from agriculture or food production, well, then maybe those are more, more, appropriately, more appropriately addressed with nature-based solutions that you know, restore lands commensurate with how much lands you used for, for your production. So that's one way of thinking about it. And what we say in the, in, in the, in the brief is that you know, this, this transition should be baked into your net zero plan. You should have a plan or at least an acknowledgement that over time, you're going to need to shift from these uh, uh, shorter duration storage and let's face it, cheaper offsets towards uh, more permanent storage over time. Yeah, well, you've uh, mentioned the difference in cost in those solutions. So obviously, as I'm setting our path for net zero, understanding what the potential gap is at any particular target year uh, is is a is an issue for us, and to try and understand or get a sense of potential bill for for offset might be um, is important. Um, the issue with the Particularly the longer term, I think there's, there's, there's two issues really. There's, there's the issue of, of the current reputation of, of offsetting schemes where we'll all have seen the box that you can tick for your flight that offers you to offset your emissions for some paltry sum and, and, and in a scheme that, that you can't be sure that those emissions reductions are happening. So, and I think, you know, there is a reputational issue that we need to address and that's, why this is helpful to to start addressing those issues as a network, as a as academia to 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 understand those issues. Um, so there's that, but that timing issue of um, if we tell people that our solution to to fixing the gap is is geological storage, there's a, a natural tendency for people to say, well, okay, well that's going to get fixed. I don't need to change my behaviour now, and that's a real barrier to us delivering some of the behavioral change that, that we need to see and potentially towards getting some of the investment that would be better spent on abatement than it would on offsetting. So that's the, that's the balance that we're, that we're trying to grapple with at the moment. Yeah, that, that really resonates. And I think, you know, there, there is another way to think about it, which is let's imagine you imposed on yourself a $700 a ton offsetting price to only purchase direct air capture from Climeworks in Iceland, which nobody would do and they don't have the capacity to provide. But if you did, if you essentially assessed a $700 carbon price, well, then you would be decarbonizing faster than any of the plans that you may have. So I think, you know, if you, I think, well, for, and the other point I would make is that, you know, these solutions, uh, some of the engineered solutions, some of the more nascent solutions, like, look, we, we know how to, how to plant trees and that's great. And, 
well, in fact, actually, a lot of the kind of carbon accounting and the assurance of additionality and avoidance of carbon leakage, et cetera, is actually still quite tricky, despite decades of of uh, reforestation. So I would say that you know that despite the apparent simplicity of that pathway, it's actually extremely complex. And the heterogeneity from geography to geography in terms of you know can I be sure, assured that protecting a forest in one location doesn't lead to increased uh, pressures to convert land elsewhere to, to meet constant demand. So it's more complex than it seems. But that, but I would say that, you know, as we look ahead to these next generation solutions, whether it's, you know, mineralizing carbon into building materials or, uh, you know, making sure that when we uh, incinerate our waste, which we do en masse in, in the UK and Europe, that we capture those emissions, 50% of which are plant-based. So that's a, that's a great source of carbon removal right there. So all kinds of options. And, they're not going to happen unless we start supporting them. And this is exactly the story that Europe can, can really take pride in for having been such a pivotal part of the downcosting of solar and wind. Uh, obviously, thanks in large part to Germany, Japan, China, et cetera. But you know, that's the role we need to play now. Is, and this is one of the recommendations we make in the brief as well, that universities in the UK need to uh, coalesce together. And they can kind of consolidate their buying power in a way that could be really powerful. This is where we said, you know, some entity, and it, it, it's looking more and more like the EAUC is going to take up this mantle and form this uh, UK universities offsetting alliance, which is very exciting, because that will allow universities to predominantly pursue uh, the the cheaper, sort of more mature offsets, but pool their resources to start supporting some of these next generation projects, which is which is going to be key to helping us learn more about those technologies and bring those costs down. Um, the very last piece I would say, though, about about uh, how much offsets cost. I think it's important to remember that there's the cost that somebody spends to generate these, these products. The carbon project is actually making these offsets, right? They're doing something, whether it's planting trees or sucking carbon out of the air. They have a cost. They also have a price that they sell that offset for, and that's not always the same as the cost. So, uh, And then third, there's also the value that's delivered. So there's cost, price, and value. They're not the same. I see it a, a bit of a trend among some universities to sort of almost masochistically say, well, you know, we don't think it's right to spend less than 20 pounds a ton on offsets. And I would say, well, that may well be, but I, I will happily make an offset for a dollar and sell it to you for 20 and make $19 of profit. So be careful you're not getting fleeced and realize that there are sort of two permissible motivations for offsetting. One, one of them is to carbon tax yourself, in which case, yes, you do need a high price or it's not going to do anything. But the other permissible means is to say, it's not so much about taxing ourselves and reducing uh, reducing emissions. It's more about actually undoing the damage that we're causing. And so in that case, what we want is an ultra high quality offset. It's not so much about the cost. It's about the quality. It's about the permanence. It's about the additionality that delivers. So whichever of those two philosophies you adhere to, it's going to slowly push you in the direction of the more expensive offsets because those happen to be the, the higher quality ones for the moment. But again, just being cautious that it, it, there's no sense in spending extra money. I mean, if you want to tax yourself and then put that those funds towards an abatement fund, which might be what Matt was getting at, or some other more efficient use of capital, that's great. But Eli, there is that essential tension, isn't there, between the, the, the kind of nature-based offsetting and the sort of carbon storage that you've been talking about. And, and, and do you feel it, it is that because we just, you know, just in layman's terms, we're just going to run out of space. We're going to run out of land. We're going to run out of natural solutions for for storing carbon before we've reached anything like our net zero targets. Or is it just because the storage is so much more efficient? Well, it's a good point. I mean, there is this kind of unfortunate, I would say, 
infighting or kind of tension between these two these two camps, if you will. But I think it's really a bit of a misnomer because a lot of the solutions that we would call nature-based have nothing to do with nature. And a lot of the solutions that we would call engineered have everything to do with generating biomass in a sustainable uh, and, and just way. So I think it's not so much about nature versus engineering and more about you know, duration of storage. If you're planting trees, you're storing carbon. If you're enhancing peatlands, you are storing carbon. If you are mineralizing mine tailings, you know, they're about to open this West Cumbria coal mine for no apparent reason. I mean, there, there will be removal opportunities there too, right? And so we shouldn't shy away from these maybe slightly unpleasant grayer industrial settings, which are, that's, that's where all the emissions are coming from. So if we can find ways to capture those emissions and store them, all the better. But to your question, uh, the reason why we need to think about more permanent storage is is quite simple. And that's the fact that we do have limited space. We have limited space for biological carbon stored in ecosystems, and we have limited space in geological geological reservoirs. Well, the space in geological res- reservoirs is larger than the above ground terrestrial storage space by many, many orders of magnitude. And the, the one of the pieces that I find really frightening is, you know, there are estimates of what the biosphere will do in response to 1.5 degrees of warming, right? Right now, the biosphere is a net carbon sink. But in a lot of our modeling, we, I, and I, I see this from MIT and other, other places, we see that the response of the biosphere to even 1.5 degrees of warming, which I'm beginning to fear is almost inevitable at this point, hopefully not. But let's assume, you know, if we get to 1.5 degrees of warming, how is the biosphere going to respond? Well, it's going to become a net emitter to the tune of perhaps 10 to 15 gigatons a year. That's what some of these estimates are showing. And that's and, because current ex- uh, carbon sinks will be exposed like through melting ice caps and, and that sort of thing, is it? Right. Yeah. So it's, okay. it gets into those feedback loops, which, which let's right. be honest, have a ton of uncertainty around them. So I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not, uh, th- these are numbers from a uh, low and Bernie paper that I'm happy to link in the show notes for the viewers, but you know, there's other es- es- estimates as well. The point I'm making is that the amount of emissions we can expect from the, from the, from the natural biosphere are actually quite similar to the estimates of the total deployable nature-based solutions. If you look at Griscom et al., it's something like 10 to 15 gigatons a year if we scale it up to its maximum potential. So we may need all these nature-based solutions at their max simply to keep up with the Earth's natural release of carbon in response to what we've already done to our climate. And if that's the case, first of all, that's a strong argument to be deploying nature-based solutions to their maximum. But it's also a, it also points out that we can't be using them to offset fossil emissions. There's no headroom. We already need them just to cover the biological emissions from the biosphere. So that means that every time we offset emissions from fossil fuel, whether it's petroleum in a plane or a, a, boil, a natural gas boiler in one of our dormitories, every time we offset that with carbon stored in an ecosystem, we are robbing our future selves of that opportunity. And we're basically saying, well, we're going to have to offset those, we're, we're going to have to counteract those biological emissions with these expensive next generation geological storage methods. So we can't, we have to be really careful there that we have a plan to eventually counteract fossil emissions with fossil storage. And that's a point I cannot emphasize enough. Um, And it doesn't have to happen immediately, but we have to transition in that direction. I do sometimes worry that uh, a lot of the folks, you know, myself included, who are, you know, frustrated with uh, the behavior of the oil and gas majors, et cetera, are are playing into the hands of those organizations by uh, perpetuating this aversion to the engineered solutions to geological storage. Because look what BP and Shell are doing. They're making massive investments in tree planting and nature-based solutions. They're buying companies that 
work on these carbon projects so that they can plant forests in Southeast Asia and, and tell you that when you buy petrol at the pump, it's decarbonized. So they're, they're taking the signal from the market and from the, from the population and they're responding to it. They're saying, okay, great. You don't want us to do the expensive, permanent, secure stuff. You want us to do the cheap, uh, slightly ambiguous, slightly fuzzy stuff. And by the way, make a ton of money on it when, you know, people are saying our products should be phased out. So there's a lot to unpack there. And I, I get fired up about this. It feels so like another, another whole podcast, I think. I mean, just to build on that a little bit, I think maybe one way to also think about this. I mean, I like the way that Eli presents this idea of let's think about fossil emissions and fossil storage and, and so on. I think that's really helpful. But I would also say a bit like the overall reducing our emissions agenda, what we know is that we need to use everything we've got in our toolbox. And I think that is really important for us to remember and understand. We need both types of offsets Absolutely. And without question, we need to be really careful about how we deploy them in time so that we understand, as Eli says, that we might run out of one and we have to be ready then to deploy the other at scale at a reasonable cost. And so we need to be investing in the geological storage now, at least sufficiently, and the removal options that are very nascent now so that those costs can come down and we can use them later. We need to be abating all we can now so that we can reduce the need for offsets. But we also need to be investing in excellent, high quality nature-based solutions, reductions now, because we can afford to do that now at scale and we can afford to do that well. And I think what's really kind of exciting about this being a production of the universities network that I see is that we actually need expertise that we know we have in the network and around the world to improve our ability to do both types of offsets. And it's just a different type of expertise. So to get the geological storage to be available at scale, there are still some technical challenges and we need to pilot it and test it and so on. But what we can see is that for the nature-based solutions, some of the challenges are different. How can we create perhaps policy structures or conversations or mechanisms to ensure permanence? That's not a technical question. It's a very difficult question. Um, and it's been you know worked on for ages, but it is something that we can use our intellect to try and solve. Um, and similarly, how can we build nature-based solutions that maximize those co-benefits, those the biodiversity benefits, and don't have negative impacts on food availability and bringing people out of poverty and improving nutrition? Those are difficult questions that need to be solved by another group of experts. And that's something that universities should be contributing to as well. Yeah. And that's a huge agenda to take to COP and beyond COP, I think. But Eli, just to pick up on your point that, the, that there's a, a collaborative or a grouping that universities and higher education institutes could join. What is that exactly? Yeah, that's right. So one of our recommendations in the brief was how can universities in the UK come together and share knowledge? Because to the points of uh, Elisa, Matt and yourself, you know, this is the beginning of a conversation. This brief is not the definitive guide to offsetting. We can, we can look to the Stockholm Environment Institute or others for really helpful documents like that. So we're just trying to start a conversation. The conversation needs to continue. And that's where EAUC has really stepped up and assembled a uh, carbon offsetting coalition that universities can join. They can share best practices. They can share best practices, not just around offsetting, but around emission reporting and, and metrics. Uh, and hopefully also there will be the ability to, uh, sh to combine their buying power to, uh, buy some of the more expensive solutions that are available. So, so really, uh, encourage our listeners to check out that initiative. Thank you. And we'll put details of that obviously on the website, um, you know, along with the board. We really should pull it to a close. There's so much more we could say, but Matt, I think you had just one or two closing remarks that you wanted to, to share with us. Yeah. I think, I think 
just reflecting on on that really helpful conversation, I think the thing for me is is how do we persuade um, our institutions to take the risks that are necessary in what is a very short timescale? Because there are a lot of unknowns, and I, I I agree with Alyssa entirely that we that we will need both methods, uh, and we have to start thinking about what do those methods look like for us. So for us, that is thinking about you know, what are the place-based solutions that we can come up with, you know, perhaps at our farms, perhaps in our local environment or or the local environment of our international campuses as well. Um, and how do we, uh, and which sources, so uh, we, we, we have referred to, um, you know, the, the accounting problem. There is an accounting problem here, not just in the risk around uh, securing that offset through time and that removal from the atmosphere, but there's a risk around actually just calculating what are the emissions that you need to to, to buy offset for. And I think that um, I had our scope three emissions um, land this morning. I got an email via our purchasing consortium that told me what we'd spent our money on and therefore what our scope three emissions were, which is the way that um, this is calculated, you know, um, at the moment. And that methodology is so weak in, in in areas. You know, our understanding our impacts around international air travel uh, are, are probably a lot easier to do. But you know, in terms of calculating emissions for medical precision implements and, and these other categories within our spend breakdown, you know, I'm I'm sure that there are uh, errors within that that are huge. And if you are then going to spend, you know, student fee income, you know, money from 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 students on offsets to reduce those emissions, which in scope three, a lot of it is, you know, the actual um, cause of those emissions are not within your control. You have to be sure that what you are buying is quality and fits into a uh, net zero strategy, which delivers not just on net zero, but on your wider values around social and environmental justice. And that's that's really what we're trying to do. And I think uh, this conversation has been very helpful in, in sort of understanding, you know, the issues we need to bring to the fore in our institutions. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's a great point to, to draw it to a close because this is the whole point of the briefing paper that, you know, I was an author on with others was this was the beginning of a conversation. This is not the end and these aren't all the answers. I think it's fair to say, isn't it? But we have raised so many of the issues and, and highlighted some of the, some of the potential answers. Um, huge thank you to all, um, to, to our guests, to, to Matt and to Eli and to, to Elisa as always as co-host and bringing it back to the point in hand. Um, you've been listening to the climate papers. You can listen to other episodes of this podcast on um, the website, the Grantham Institute website or on the COP26 University's website. Um, so a thank you to my guests and, and goodbye. And thanks for being with us. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you all. Thanks. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. 